0: turn with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter. If you've got one of the Bibles that we provide, that's on page 1014. Um, Well, hey, but before we jump in the text this year, um, I got a few announcements for the new year on what's going on here at Redemption Hill Church. First of all, um, uh, next Sunday, uh, for those of you that are here and you're like, hey, your next step um, is to pursue membership. We've got a covenant class next Sunday um, from twelve thirty to three thirty. It'll be right after the service. Um, you can sign up online or do that in the connection center here after the service. Also next Sunday, right after the service, we're going to be offering another round of Financial Peace University. So this is an equip group. Um, it's not starting next Sunday. It's going to start later on in January. But next Sunday, um, there's gonna be an interest meeting. You may be like, hey, what is Financial Peace University? I'd love to hear a little bit more before I actually jump in and commit. And so right after the service, um, you can join a quick interest meeting to learn more about what that is and if that might be a good next step for you. And then baptism class. Um, We've had a number of baptisms over the past few months, um, but you may be saying, hey, your next step Um, Is to to go public in your faith with baptism And so there's going to be a baptism class on January the 19th So that's two Sundays Again, you can sign up for that online or in the Connection Center And then wrapping up January on the 26th That's going to be Vision Sunday And so I know I've, I've mentioned a number of dates there to you On your worship guide today, you received a Save the Dates And so I would just encourage you, this is to give you a heads up What's going on in 2020 I'm at Redemption Hill Church? Take these, plug them into your calendar. Go ahead and block off some of these that, that you want to make sure that you don't miss and that you are a part of. Well, turning to our text today, let me pray for us. And let's prepare our hearts to receive and hear from God today. Father, God, we thank you as we step into this new year that your love is relentless. God, we want to hear that. We want to rest in that today. God, we want to believe that. And so, God, as we jump into your word, as we jump into a new book in this new year, God, we ask for your grace. We ask for the work of your spirit to renew our minds, to give us understanding to your word, and to convict us, to move us in obedience and faith and trust in your word. So, God, in, in these next few moments... God, we pray, have your way in us, speak to us, lead us, change us, we pray in Christ's name, amen, amen. Well, I don't know about you guys, but I love the beginning of a new year. Anybody, who loves the beginning of a new year? I've got a few hands there, like everybody, man, the rest of you guys dreading this year? Come on, we got a new decade, it's not just a new year, it is a new decade. Here's why I like a new year. For me, it's oftentimes a, a time to just like clean the slate and what's happened in the previous year to do some reflection. Uh, you know, I had a few days off um, over Christmas to reflect on, I mean, what are kind of my life rhythms and what are some new things that, that I wanna do for the new year? Now, I know some of you guys, you're probably like, you're already hitting up your New Year's resolutions. Who, anybody hit the gym yet? Um, a few of you guys, I'm waiting till February to hit the gym. I'll give January to all you guys and then I'll, uh, I'm just I'm just kidding there, um, but uh, I I love a new year. I love a, it's a new decade. It's a new sermon series. With this new year, we're jumping into the next um, number of weeks. We're going to be going through the book of First Peter. Um, and so you know when I think about going through a new book, um, you know think about this like why should you even care about this book 1 Peter? Like like why should it matter to you? Why why, why should that excite you? Um, and I want to I quickly try to answer that um, to capture your attention and say, man, this, is, this series, this book is worth jumping into, worth giving it all that I have. Now, before I answer that, there's a part of answer that, how many of you would you say you're from Boston? Like, you're a local. Man I, love, man, I love those hands. How many of you would say, man, I'm not from here. Like, I moved here. I'm from somewhere else, and, and I just happen to be here today. Who's... Okay, I, I see those hands as well. I've lived here now almost an entire decade. I'm coming up as like nine and a half years this June. It'll be 10 years. Um, and I'm still an outsider. You guys can get that. I mean, it does. Like, I go places and I get two to three words out of my mouth. And then some like, Where are you from? I'm like, What did I do? And, you know, <laughs> I just opened my mouth. I started talking. And they know that I'm not from. Boston or from Mefa, you know? Um, but my experience is nothing like those who've come to Boston from like another country as a refugee. I mean, I just moved from North Carolina, like a thousand miles. Um, I didn't have to learn a new language. Actually, I I take that back. Um, I, there are some words that I did learn that, that I didn't, I'm just kidding. You know, um, but for, for many of you guys, like, you're moving here from another country, you're learning a new language, you're going through, like, visas, passport stuff, new cultural customs. Um, but for me, like, a, a thousand miles, I now call Medford home. In fact, I'm a Sox fan, I'm, I'm a, a Bruins fan, I'm a Celtics fan. This will be my only comment. I am a Pats fan. I, don't let that ruin the sermon for you. And hearing God's word today, there is hope. But where, where am I here? Like, how do you recover from that? Here's why we need First Peter. Medford is my home. And First Peter tells me it's not my home. I love this city. I mean, this is what my kids know. I own a home in Medford. Like, I just went and traveled over a vacation and spent some time with my family. I didn't go back home. Like, this is home for me. But when I read First Peter, uh, we're going to be challenged over and over again, "This is not your home." And so th- what First Peter's getting us at is, as a result of being a child of God, as a child of the king, as a child of the creator of the universe, I owe my allegiance to another king, to another place. It's not here. I live in this country, I live in this city, but I'm destined for another land. Which raises the question, how do I live now in such a way that reflects this is not my home? 1 Peter's going to help us with that. That's why we need First Peter. He was writing to encourage and challenge normal, everyday followers of Jesus trying to live in an ungodly world. And so he, here's what we're doing today. We're just going to look at two verses. We're going to look at 1 Peter verses 1 and 2. And here's the deal. When you jump into a new book, whether you're doing some Bible reading on your own, it's always great. Jesus answer some like preliminary questions, like, man, who's writing this book? Who's he writing it to? What's the equation? What, what's the occasion? What's the purpose? Those are some of the things that we're gonna get at today. But don't just clock out them. This isn't just an introductory sermon. They are gonna be two foundational truths that I hope rock us today and shape a new decade and a new year. So let's jump into the text. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning. In verse 1, the Word of God says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So, man, right off the bat here, we get a number of our questions answered. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Who's writing this book? Who's the author? We hear off the bat, it's Peter here. You guys know about Peter. Peter... Um, who we first hear about in the Gospels, as Simon. He was a fisherman. Jesus calls him as a disciple. He's a part of the inner three, Peter, James, and John. He works closely with Jesus in entire, his entire ministry. Later on in Matthew 16, Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? And what does Peter confess? You are The Christ, the son of the living God. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, you're right, and and you are Peter. He gives him this name, Peter. And he says, on this rock, I am going to build my church. What happens a little bit later, we turn to Acts in the early church. And who is there preaching at Pentecost? It's none other than Peter, the very one who would disown Jesus and denied him three times. He had been restored. He's the one preaching the gospel in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit comes. Thousands are saved and are baptized. He's a key leader in the early church. And now we have a letter from him that is a part of the word of God. He tells us this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Why does he mention this word apostle? He's not just using it in a generic sense, like as a sent one. He's using it as one of the 12 apostles. It means this. This letter comes to us with divine authority. Peter is not just giving us his opinion. Peter, being commissioned by Jesus, is giving us the very words of God. Now, let me give you a little sidebar here. Some of you, you may be new to Christianity. You may even be asking, like, why is it that we have these books right here as a part of our Bible? There were three cr- criteria that, that, that led the early church in not deciding and recognizing what is the word of God. And the three criteria were this. The first one was was it Catholic. And, and this word is not referring to the Catholic Church. It means universal. And so the question would have been, was this book widely, if not universally recognized by the churches as the Word of God? So we're looking, what, what are the, the, the early church, what are the books that they're affirming and recognizing this is the Word of God? Was it Catholic? Second, was it Orthodox? Was this book consistent with the apostolic doctrine and was it, did it not contradict any of these other books that have been recognized? Was it, was, it, was it Catholic? Was it Orthodox? And then finally, was it apostolic? It had to be written by or tied closely to an apostle. An apostle, an authorized eyewitness of Jesus. And so we see this here. Peter is an apostle, and as a result of that, this word comes to us with divine Authority. We find further information about some of the background here in the very last part of the book. Turn to chapter 5 with me. In chapter 5, and I think I got it on the screen up here, you know, when you're, when you're in a new book, look at the introduction and then go read the conclusion, and that's going to give you a lot of this context to help you understand what's going on in the middle. In the conclusion, in verse 12 of chapter 5, 1 Peter says this, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him. What do we see here? A few other observations. First, we hear about this guy, Silvanus. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, I have written briefly to you. Most likely, Silvanus was Peter's secretary and potentially even delivered this letter. We'll come back to that in a second. We hear about Mark, Mark, a co-laborer in ministry, and then we hear this word Babylon. She who was at Babylon who was likewise chosen, sends you greetings. Most believe Babylon here refers to the church in Rome. And so here's what we do know about Peter. Peter was martyred between AD 64 and 67 in Rome. And so he would have been writing this letter from Rome. Most people put the date around AD 62, 63. So he's in Rome with Mark and Silvanus. He's writing this letter To who? Who is he writing it to? We see here, go back to chapter one. In chapter one, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, I'm gonna come back to those two words, elect exiles, and then this word dispersion in a second. But first of all, let's just look at the... the, on a map here, what's the area that Peter's talking about? I've got a map up here for you here. If you see on the far left up here, you can see Romans is at the top left corner up there. The area that he's writing to is in Asia Minor on the far right over here. So you can see the Black Sea at the top up there, and then you can see Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Most likely, this was a circular letter that would have gone to many churches in those Roman provinces. In Silvanus, they're listed in this order because he probably would have started in Pontus and would have come all the way back around before returning to Rome. So this was the region. And now when we see this region, this region was under Greco-Roman rule. It would have been under Roman control. Um, and so our first inclination would be to assume, who's he writing to? Jews or Gentiles? We'd assume that he's writing to Gentiles. For those, Gentiles would have been primarily the ones living in that area. You can see Palestine, Jerusalem, on down here to the bottom right. But that doesn't explain the language that he uses, such as exile and dispersion. Now, we just preached through Isaiah, the servant songs there. We, we've talked about this language of Exile. When you hear that word exile, where do you immediately go? You go to the Old Testament. I mean, one of the main storylines of the Old Testament is what? It's it's Israel being exiled out of God's land. We see that in Adam and Eve. They're in the, the people of God, in the land of God, enjoying the rest and blessing of God. And then now as a result of their sin, Adam and Eve are kicked out of the land. And so God's bringing his people, Israel, back into the land. But once Israel gets into the land, God tells them, hey, if you're not obedient, you're gonna be exiled out of the land. And so the reality of the Old Testament is that Israel is exiled. They're kicked out of the promised land. And so when we hear exile here, we automatically think, hey, he, he must be writing to Jews who've been exiled. But here's the problem with that. As we read through 1 Peter, there are a number of clues that point to the audience being a primarily Gentile audience and not a Jewish audience. I'll show you a couple areas. Look in chapter 2, and I don't have this one on the screen. Look at chapter 2, verse 10. 1 Peter two ten, he writes, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Now, if he's writing to Jews, that's a very, why would he call them not God's people? You would actually expect the opposite. You once were God's people. Here's another clue. In chapter 4, beginning in verse 3, he writes, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. He's describing these, these sinful acts of the Gentiles and that they don't participate in that. And so most, most commentators agree that First Peter is not primarily written to Jews It's written to Gentiles, which then raises this question, why then does Peter say to those who are elect exiles? An exile, as we've already described, was a person that was banished from his or her land because of, by the force of certain circumstances. This word dispersion there, exiles of the dispersion, that word literally means scattered. Those have been scattered. But but if it's as a result of the exile, they were scattered because of their sin. Is he now writing to believers who were scattered because of their sin? I don't think that's the case. And so what's happening here is that he's using exile language in a metaphorical sense to teach us an important theological lesson, a lesson I'm gonna to return to in a little bit. So just hang on to that nugget and know we're gonna come back to that. And so, 1 Peter here, written by Peter to Gentiles who were scattered over those Roman provinces. And, and, and this is a circular letter. It would have been shared to a number of the churches. The occasion for this letter, like why did he write it? As, as, we, as we read through this, we see a number of times Peter talk about trials, suffering, and persecution. And so here's the occasion. You've got new believers in primarily Gentile regions. They're seeking to follow Jesus And now as a result of following Jesus, they're leaving behind a lot of the Gentile sinful practices. And what are they facing from their friends and from their family? They're facing persecution. Sound familiar? And so the suffering that they face, this isn't the general suffering of sickness, of death or poverty when we're reading about these trials and this suffering this is the persecution it, that they're facing it's it's social pressure against the christian community they were facing criticism they were being mocked they were being discriminated against and so it raises the question how are they going to respond do you ever face social pressure as a follower of Jesus? Do you face criticism as a follower of Jesus? Look, we live in a very similar place. The message of the gospel is not a message that for the most part is celebrated in New England. In fact, one of the reasons Medford's my home, and my family moved here a decade ago, is because of the great lostness in New England. There are people that just have never heard or have not responded to the good news of Jesus, that's why I'm here. It's not a, you know, and people ask, um, hey, like, why did you move here? And often my story, hey, I moved here to start a church. Because it's one of the most unchurched places, like, that's not a news that, that for the most part, that's welcome. Hey, we're glad you're here to start a new church and tell us about Jesus. Now, the inclusivity of Boston's like, oh yeah, that's great, you're doing another church. But the reality is, the message, like they, they they're, they're, Jesus is not somebody that New England is looking to follow. And so we face a similar type of situation as the context here of 1 Peter. Were they going to respond in fear? Were they going to be overcome with anxiety? Were they going to retaliate? Were they going to be ashamed of their new faith? Were they going to abandon their new faith and return to their former lifestyle? Surely this is what the devil, which 1 Peter 5 says, is prowling around looking for someone to devour. The devil wants them to go and and abandon their faith. But but, But Peter is writing so that that's not the case. He's writing to encourage these believers to remain faithful in the midst of suffering. And how are they going to remain faithful? He reminds them of their identity bound up in these two key words elect exiles. And so here's what I want to do the rest of our time today. I want to look at, and this is the point of my sermon, how we are to keep moving in the midst of persecution as elect exiles. We're going to impact these two words. And I believe they're two words that will open up the themes of the whole of 1 Peter for us and to really apply them on how we're to live today in the midst of similar suffering and persecution. And so here's, let me look at the first word first, and it's this, this word elect. you are God's treasured possession. Elect, you are God's treasured possession. Possession. We see here when he says to those who are elect exiles, verse two modifies this word elect and he does it with a Trinitarian formula. We see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You guys see that? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Those phrases modify what it means to be elect. Now, why is Paul using this word elect here? When we, when we oftentimes think of our salvation or think of our baptism Sundays and somebody's up here sharing their story, we're oftentimes sharing our story from our perspective. I, I share about, man, how all the things that worked in my life that led me to salvation in Jesus. And I talked about how the gospel came alive to me and how I repented, turned from my sin, and believed. But when we hear this word election here, what we're seeing here is from God's perspective what salvation looks like. And so, you know, when I answer the question, I'm often you know, my answering this question, what must I do to be saved? I repent and believe. But what we're looking at here is the sovereignty of God and in particular, his initiation in salvation. and our statement of faith, there's a, there's a doctrine on election that says this. It says, election is the gracious purpose of God, whereby he chose some persons unto everlasting life, not because of foreseen merit in them, but because of his sheer mercy in Christ, in consequence of which choice they are called, justified, and glorified God's grace therefore excludes boasting and promotes humility we first hear about this election language in the old testament we go to Israel there are a number of places you could go go all the way back to Deuteronomy where it talks about God choosing Israel And it says, I chose you, not because you are the most numerous or the most powerful, but I chose you because I have chosen to set my love upon you. Now what's happening in 1 Peter is Peter's using that same language and he's applying it here to the church. Look at chapter two, verses nine and 10. I've got this one on the screen for us. He says this. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Do you hear that? This is language here that would have been familiar to the Jews. They were the holy nation. They were the chosen people. And now Peter's saying, no, that's the church in Christ. Now, this is who you are. And he continues. Look at verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now You are God's people once you had not received mercy but now you have received mercy. The church is the Israel of God. His chosen people. His treasured possession. Let that sink in. You. If you're saying man I'm a follower of Jesus. I've repented and believed. as, As a child of the king you are God's Chosen, elect, treasured possession, and then he qualifies that with this first qualification in verse two. He says, "According to the foreknowledge of God, the Father." Here's the point here when we look, and as Peter's encouraging, I mean, think about it. This is the very beginning. Like he's like just packed a ton of theology here in the introduction to these believers who were facing persecution. Hey, your salvation, I know you repented and believed, but before that, it was initiated with God in eternity past. Our salvation doesn't originate with ourselves. Dead people can't make themselves alive again dead people who were dead in their sins need the powerful work of the Spirit of God to initiate and do this work so that we respond in repentance and faith. It's similar to what Romans 8, 28 through 30 says. I've got on the screen for you. It says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now look at this. He says, for those whom he foreknew He also predestined to be conformed to the image of a son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Here's the point of this. Salvation begins with God, and what God begins, he's going to be faithful to bring it to completion. If God initiates it, if he foreknows it, he predestines, he calls, he justifies, he he glorifies. Man, that gives me great comfort. That that it's not just me on my own. It is the grace and power and mercy of God in my life. And so how is this doctrine supposed to function in our lives? Here's the deal. You may face rejection and persecution in this world, but know this. The creator of the universe The king of all kings has chosen you and set his covenantal affection upon you and nothing can change that. Do not fear. But I know this doctrine makes some of us get a little uncomfortable. So some of us might be squirming in our seat because we hear about this election and this choosing and and it raises all kind of questions. But let me encourage you with this. My, my seminary professor, one of the main takeaways and illustrations he shared with me that, that's always stuck with me, helped me, says, you can't be a Waffle House theologian. Now, let me tell you about Waffle House theologians. I, I had the great privilege of, of driving my, all my kids back. Lee had to fly back and be at work, and so I, I drove all five kids 14 hours by the Spirit of God. Um, <laughs> you ought to see us when we walk into the hotel, and I've got like... It's me and all, yeah, they're mine. Um, and then when we show up at the Continental Breakfast, which, you know, they already get ready to restock when my crew rolls up. Um, but, you know, we take up the wa- waffle machines for like, I just give hey, guys, you know, get a waffle now. Otherwise, you know, we're going to be making them for a few minutes. And, um, you know, the way you make your waffles is, you know, you get your whatever you call that, your waffle mix, and you pour it in your mold. But oftentimes what we pour into the mold spills over. And so here's what my professor said. He says some of us are Waffle House theologians. We we pour our we take the Bible and we put it in our mold, and the pieces that don't fit, we want a nice looking waffle, we just cut off. And you find it too often in the world today. Let's just either ignore a verse or let's ignore a doctrine. But we can't do that. And so he says this. If you find a verse or a doctrine that doesn't fit your mold, you need to change your mold. This has got to be primary, not my theological position. And so I'm teaching you about election today because it's in the Bible. And I don't want to just skim over. I want to help, help us think about this. And so one of the questions that maybe makes us a little uncomfortable is, well, if you talk of God choosing some, why doesn't God save everyone? And Tim Keller's got a great article I just read on the Gospel Coalition recently about this. But he says, the do- whether you believe in the doctrine of election or not, it doesn't solve the problem. If you want to do away with the doctrine, you've still got the issue. If God is powerful and he desires everybody to be saved, why doesn't he save everybody? This isn't just a problem for those who believe in the doctrine of election, But he answers this. He says, why doesn't God save everyone? He, he says, let me give two things to you. He says, we can only know two things. First, the answer must have something to do with God's perfect nature. He is perfectly loving and perfectly righteous. And neither can be preferred over the other or he wouldn't be God. Somehow, the answer has to do with his being consistent with himself. Second, we cannot see the whole picture. Why? If we can conceive of a more merciful system of salvation than God has, we must not see it rightly, for God is more merciful than we can ever imagine. Indeed, when we finally see the whole plan and answer, we will not be able to find fault with it. That's helpful for me. But there's a second question I think some of us wrestle with, and it's this. If election is true, why should I pray? Why should I share my faith? Why should I do anything? And J.I. Packer, in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, he says, God's sovereignty and salvation should affect our attitude in three ways. The first one is this. He says, it should make us bold. Did you hear that? it should make us bold. He says, you and I will never write off anyone as hopeless and beyond the reach of God if we believe in the sovereignty of his grace. The fact that I know that God calls and chooses and elects, there's nobody that I can say they're beyond the power, saving power of God. And I don't know who that is in your life right now. I don't know who that is on your multiply card. I don't know who that one person that you've been praying for, but I want to encourage you as you hear, man, the elect exiles that you walk away saying, man, God is powerful to save, and I want to walk away with even greater boldness than I've ever had to go share the gospel. Second, he says this, it should make us patient. It should keep us from being daunted when we find that our evangelistic endeavors meet with no immediate response. God saves in his own time and we ought not to suppose that he is in such a hurry as we are. It makes us bold. It makes us patient. And then finally he says it should make us prayerful. The knowledge then that God is sovereign in grace and that we are impotent to win souls should make us pray and keep praying. Here's the reality. You and I can't save anybody. But the God-ordained means by which people are saved is how? We share the gospel. But I don't save anybody. It's just, I'm the sower. Who, Who gives the growth? God does. And so it should drive us to prayer, boldness, patience, and prayer. God, would you save? Elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God. The Father. The second modification, modifier here, it says, elect in the sanctification of the Spirit. To be sanctified means to be set apart, to be brought into the sphere of the Holy. Another way of saying this might be to translate it this way elect through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Now, oftentimes we hear sanctification, and what do we hear? Well, what does sanctification mean? We usually think of it in terms of progressive sanctification. We've got a statement on this in our statement of faith, which means man, when I'm saved, I'm justified, I'm declared righteous, but sanctification is this process of me continually becoming like Jesus. Newsflash, I'm still a sinner. But the work of sanctification is is I'm not staying where I'm at. It's the work of the Spirit that continually convicting me of sin and empowering me to put off my old self, to renew my mind, and put on the new self. That's not what he's talking about right here. That's usually what we think of when we hear sanctification. What he's talking about right here, the focus here is the work of the Spirit in conversion. When somebody's initially saved. And so it's when, when we become Christians, when we're saved, we, as, as Thomas Schreiner says, become God's holy and set-apart people. And how does that happen? It happens through the convicting power and work of the Holy Spirit. So when we think of salvation here, we see from eternity past the foreknowledge and electing and choosing of God. We see when I hear the gospel, when the gospel's preached, that there is this convicting work of the Holy Spirit that that enlightens and opens and illuminates and helps me to see and be able to respond to the gospel. It gives me new life. And then we see this final phrase for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. I'm gonna break this down into two parts. Now we get into the result or purpose. Like why has God chosen and what is this sanctifying work of the Spirit? It's for two things. That I would be obedient to Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, and it's so that the work of Jesus would be applied to my life. One of my favorite verses in 1 Peter is 1 Peter 3:18, which says, "Christ suffered and died to bring us to God." Look, this is the gospel. The gospel is not about us pretending to be good people and have it together. Here's the gospel. The gospel is that I'm a sinner separated from God and there's nothing I can do to make myself right with God. I need somebody to cleanse me. And so Jesus, through his perfect life and through his sacrificial death, he spills and pours out his blood and it is the blood of Jesus that cleanses me, that forgives me of my sin so that I can now be brought near to God. You were made to be with God forever. It's your sin that keeps you from him. So let me ask you this. Have you responded to the work of Christ by believing in Jesus to pay the penalty for your sin, confessing, acknowledging your sin asking him to forgive you and seeking to follow him with your life. This is what Peter's writing to. He's writing to people who have responded to the gospel and they're being obedient to the gospel and following Jesus. And here's the deal. The only way that you will live forever with God in, in this home that you are destined for is through the work of Christ. There's nothing that you can do to get there one of the questions when we're sharing our faith sometimes we'll ask is hey if you're standing before the throne of God you've died and he asks you hey why should I let you in what would you say do you know the answer to that because there's typically what you're going to hear well My good outweighs, though, you know, I didn't do anything. We're going to compare ourselves with the most worst people that we can find. I know that was horrible English. That happens sometimes when you're up here. Meg, please forgive me. Um, We just find somebody who's worse than us. And I wasn't like that person. But what we don't do is compare ourselves to the holiness of God. And none of us, no matter what good you've done in your life, will measure up. And so the only answer is, God, I'm going to tell you the truth. There's no reason that you should let me in. In fact, I deserve eternal separation from you forever. But you sent Jesus. And he lived a perfect life. He never sinned. He's the one who deserved to be here. And he took death. And he said, if you will turn, confess your sin, and believe, I will forgive you, and I'll give you eternal life. And so, God, the only reason you should let me in there is because of the words of Jesus and what he's done. If that is not your answer, there's no way you're getting it. It's only through Jesus. And he's writing to believers here who who are obedient to the gospel, who would trust it. In Jesus, who had been cleansed through the sprinkling with his blood. And so the Father foreknows, the Spirit sanctifies, and the Son cleanses. You know what? This is a new identity. Why do these two words elect exiles? Why should they shape a new year and a new decade? It's because this is who you are. Chosen, sanctified, cleansed. We're elect exiles. And then let me unpack this final word briefly and we'll wrap up. We're elect. We're God's treasure possession. And we're exiles. Heaven, not earth, is your home. I've already mentioned that Peter's primary audience is a Gentile one. And he's using this word in a metaphorical sense to teach us an important theological lesson. Well, here's the lesson. Since you are chosen and elected by God in his treasured possession, your citizenship is where God is. Your citizenship is in heaven. This is not your home. This is why the New American Standard translation, it translates to this verse. It says, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout what's an alien an alien is somebody who resides in one country but whose allegiance is in another country they lived in the roman provinces of pontus cappadocia galatia but their allegiance was to king jesus and so he's teaching them here you're in exile that's not your home and one of the primary ways he encourages them with this exile language is reminding them that their circumstances are the very same circumstances that Jesus faced. And we're going to see this as we study 1 Peter. In chapter 2, verse 4, it says, And as you come to him, speaking of Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, Chosen. and and precious Jesus was chosen chapter 1 verse 20 it says Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world but Jesus also lived in this world as an exile he was rejected he was the stone that became a rock of stumbling and a rock of offense He suffered the most unjust persecution. Go read chapter 3. And it says, and he kept his mouth shut the entire time. And so while you face suffering and persecution, you're following in the footsteps of Jesus. As one scholar puts it, you're joining your king in exile. Look to Jesus and follow his example. And so that leads to this question. If following Jesus means that we're going to face suffering and persecution like him, why would anybody want to walk that road? Here's why. This same author says, When we realize, listen up guys, when we realize we're foreknown like Jesus, when we realize our sufferings are like Jesus's, When we realize Jesus' rejection and his cross weren't a mistaken dead end, but the foreordained on-ramp to resurrection and glory, then our faith in God explodes with the hope of our own future glory. The logic of the apostle is simple. If we share now in Christ's sufferings, then we will share in his glory. This is the ground of Christian joy, a living hope in a world of seemingly unending shame, opposition, struggle, weakness, affliction, and persecution. The certainty of future glory is the unstoppable heartbeat of our endearing hope. And that's only a hope if we see ourselves as exiles. Because here's the deal. If this is your home, Jesus says you'll lose everything. But we count everything as at loss now so that we gain everything that is to come. These two truths, elect exiles, have massive implications for how we live our lives. And I want to wrap up with this. The first one. As elect exiles chosen by God, Peter's going to call us to imitate the holiness of God. He's going to say, Be holy as God is holy. So when you get this reality, you're elect, you're chosen, you're sanctified, you're cleansed, you belong to Him, you're His treasured possession. Go imitate that. One scholar says this. He says, The indicative of God's character contains within itself the imperative of your conduct. God is holy. That's who he is. That's the indicative. The imperative go be holy. And then Peter calls believers to remain steadfast through suffering, imitating Jesus. And this same scholar says, similarly, the indicative of of Christ's innocence and non-retaliatory response to suffering becomes an imperative for the Christian community. In other words, act in accordance with your new identity. Elect exiles. One of the key verses of 1 Peter, one of the theme verses, I think, is chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And I'll leave us with this. This is where Peter says, and this is the only other place the word exile is used in 1 Peter. He says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. In other words, be holy, for I am holy. Don't live like the Gentiles. You're elect. Your home is there." So he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We are supposed to live in Medford. We are supposed to live in Boston in such a way that is distinct. The things that we say, the way that we respond, the things that we do, It ought to be evident to a watching world. That's what Peter's saying. The world's watching. In the same way that they were watching the Christian community here, they're watching you and I. And my prayer for us this year is that God would use us in this way, that they would see our good deeds and that through the light of Christ collectively shining through us as a church, that God would even bring salvation as a watching world watches how elect exiles live. Look, you're guaranteed this year, if you want to follow Jesus and be obedient, you're going to face social pressure, you're going to face persecution, you're going to face suffering, but you're no more like Jesus than them. This is not your home. That is your home. And so I'll leave you with the same words that First Peter, that Peter left them. May grace and peace be multiplied to you.